I'm Steve Anderson. I'm your interim pastor here to uh, help us during our interim journey between senior pastors. And um, I'm so thankful that God has given me the opportunity to serve with you here in this church. We're just enjoying it tremendously. Will you join me in prayer, please? Speak, Lord. Tell us about your heart for us. Tell us about your love and compassion for the church. Tell us about how those you love, you discipline. Tell us about your hopes for us. Speak, Lord. Your children are listening. Amen. Well, today we're investigating again Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, uh, what is today's Western Turkey. We've looked already at Jesus' message to four of those churches in chapter 2. Today uh, we start chapter 3, the church in Sardis. And let me set the context again. Why are we studying this passage of scripture, Jesus' letters to these churches, because we want to know how Jesus speaks to churches and what Jesus might have to say to Lakewood Church. Every church is unique and has unique challenges. Lakewood is a wonderful church. I'm so happy to get to serve with you, and I love you so deeply, but we have a history a history that includes chapters of real pain and struggle, chapters that feel repetitious. And right now, nothing that we could do is more important for the future of our church than to ask God to heal us from that pain and struggle. If you're new to Lakewood, that might be a surprise to you, and we sure hope that that doesn't uh, push you away. Most churches, you know, just kind of sweep it under the rug when they have problems, and sometimes uh, the dirt is pretty deep under the rug. But I want you to be encouraged at Lakewood, because we're not going to do that anymore. We're asking God to show us what we've maybe have ignored and lead us to cleansing and healing. We know that Jesus loves his churches. Jesus loves Lakewood. And churches that will turn to God in their struggle and turn away from their failings to actually repent, as these letters say so often, those churches have a bright future in the promise of God. That's what we want. That's what we're pursuing. So if you're new to Lakewood, this is a great opportunity for you to experience a great adventure that most churches never have. God, we believe, is going to show us where the messes have been and what we need to do to clean them up. So stay with us, because the adventure, Ed, is going to be amazing. C.S. Lewis famously said that pain is God's megaphone. And the reality is that when God uses that megaphone in similar, even repetitious ways, there is something God is trying to say to us, and we need to listen carefully and look for what that is. And we're going to narrow our focus at Lakewood until we understand that and hear from God about that and deal with where we may have been wrong. 
so today, uh, the church at Sardis, Revelation 3, 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what do we know about this place, this city, Sardis, and the church that was there? It was a real church in a real city. Sardis is the modern city of Sart in Turkey. Sardis is believed to be the oldest city in that region. It was once wealthy beyond imagination. During the time of the Greek Empire, it was capital of the Lydian kingdom, and Croesus was king there. And such myth arose around Croesus' wealth that we still have a phrase in our language, more gold than Croesus. You ever heard that? In fact, Sardis is the place where gold and silver coins were first minted. So if you have a quarter in your pocket, you owe Sardis a debt of gratitude. It was also fortified, uh, an Acropolis, a huge uh, mountain actually outside of that city. Um, And we'll look at that in just a moment. Christians and Jews were treated well there in that city. As I mentioned, it was a wealthy place. The Romans built a gorgeous gymnasium there for athletics and bathing and education, a wall of which still stands to this day, beautiful there. Also, Sardis had the most amazing Acropolis above the city. I mentioned that, a 1,500-foot cliff that they fortified in times of war. And it seemed to be so safe that nobody, they thought, would ever capture it. But twice it happened. Enemy armies scaled the cliff in a nighttime attack and surprised and overtook the city. That will come back in the text today. In the Roman period, it was also a center of the wool-dyeing industry. And there was a major Jewish presence there. Archaeologists have found gorgeous Jewish synagogue there and also several buildings that may have been used as the fir- in the first century as churches. In one of them, they actually found a wall painting of the Apostle John, the author of the book of Revelation. It appears that Christians along with Jews were treated well there. And perhaps that easy life No pressure, no persecution like in some of the other places. Perhaps even there was a kind of compromise of that church with the pagan society. It created such a spiritual laziness, a spiritual drowsiness, that in the text that we read today, 
the Lord does not congratulate them or commend them at all. By the way, just let me say that none of the original seven churches is alive today. I know today that there are Christian churches in those cities, but none of those are the same congregations that John wrote to. They all did eventually die. Did some of them heed the words Jesus gave to John to write down? I certainly hope so. I'd love to know that, but the Bible doesn't tell us. Eventually, every one of their lights burned low and then out. So once again, with that background information on Sardis, let's dig into the letter to this church. It's a very stern letter, but a brief letter. And again, we see sections of the template that John gives us writing to each of the churches. First, the credentials and salutation. To the angel or the messenger of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Remember back to chapter 1, who is this? Who is this, the one who is speaking, who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars? This is Jesus, the Lord Jesus, in his eternal kingly manifestation. A new phrase here, who holds or has the seven spirits of God. Seven is the symbol of completeness, fullness, and it's a picture of the one who has the absolute fullness of the Holy Spirit. No one has displayed the power and the inner sensitivity to the Holy Spirit like Jesus. And then we discover a struggle with this outline or template at the church of Sardis. If you're looking for encouragement and commendation in Jesus' letter, you're not going to find it here. He moves right on to constructive criticism. I know your works and that you have a reputation of being alive, but are what? Dead. We said this just a few weeks back. Every church has a reputation. People have opinions about churches. We do. We have opinions about Lakewood. But let me tell you what matters is Jesus' opinion. This is his church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's Jesus' church. And how Jesus evaluates the church matters. We've noticed all the way along how much Jesus loves and cares for each, his congregations, each of them. He investigates, he examines them because he cares about them. He deeply cares about their health and their vitality, just like my wife. I married a nurse, by the way, and she insists that I go to the doctor for my annual physical because she cares about me. And Jesus evaluates and examines his churches and says to each church what it needs to hear. And this exam is a painful one. I mentioned absolutely no congratulations for this church. Hard words they need to hear. This diagnosis is tough. The reputation you have is not how the master views you. 
Sardis. You may have been taking comfort in how your community views you or how other believers view you, but you're not as healthy as you look, and the consequences of ignoring your disease is headed toward disaster. I know your works, that you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. There's a major difference between your reputation and the reality of the situation. And Jesus knows the truth. You're dead. You have a great reputation of looking like you're alive and vital and dynamic, but here's the truth. You're dead. Comatose at least. People look in and say, wow, that's an alive place, lively ministries, lively preaching, great facilities, lively programs, people around are impressed, but the truth is that life has gone out of it. The church in Sardis is a comatose, nearly gone church. And here I think is one of the challenges for believers and for all churches, Christianity is about life, the life of Jesus in us. Christianity is not some belief system. Christianity is not a set of programs. It's not about impressive buildings or powerful services. It's about life in the spirit, life with Jesus, a living, breathing, dynamic, energetic relationship with Jesus himself. And it's possible in our lives and in our congregations for distractions to come along that steal the life out of what Jesus wants to be a vital, life-breathing relationship with him. Even the things that are meant to help us can become distractions. It's easy, isn't it, to let some structure substitute for a living relationship with Jesus. Those structures should be helpful to keep us close to Jesus, keep our faith alive, active, and lively. But have you noticed that they can subtly become substitutions and a distraction instead? Let me illustrate. I've had these conversations. So tell me about your faith. Tell me about your relationship with God. Answer, well, I, I'm a member of such and such a church across town. Well, that's great. But tell me about your own spiritual journey. Answer, well, I teach Sunday school, and I'm a member of the board, and I usher once a month. Yeah, I'm faithful to the church. That tells me about activity, but it tells me nothing about life. Jesus says, I know your works. I've seen what you've been up to. I know what others say about you. I've even heard about your opinion of yourself. You've looked like you're really alive, but you're a dead church. Are they fully dead? Well, the next phrase is, wake up. Wake up. If you're fully dead, you don't wake up. But they're close. Comatose at least. I think you all know that I used to be on the staff of a sister denomination of the Evangelical Free Church, Converge Worldwide. We were the old Swedish Baptist group. 
And um, I was assistant to the president for the North Central region. And I traveled and preached in a different church every Sunday. And wow, I'll tell you, churches are different. And sometimes really catching what's going on is tricky. I remember traveling to a church uh, out east of Waterloo, Iowa. Lovely facility. Wonderful morning service. Great worship. Good pre... Well, I was the preacher, so I don't know how good that was. <laughs> Wonderful youth ministry. Tremendous congregation. I had a great time there. And then went back home and about Wednesday sitting in my office in Owatonna, I got a call from the church chairman who said, Steve, can you come back? We're having a board meeting next week, and we've got an issue that's been going on for too long, and we've got to bring some closure to it. There was major conflict between the pastor and the board. pastor had said things and done things that were impulsive, poorly thought through. His family life was a mess. And he had wounded the congregation by things that he had said, and they had wounded him by things they had said and done. And wow, was he defensive. Even when leaders tried to move his direction in the conflict, he took a more extreme position. First impressions were so impressive. Digging deeper, they were in big trouble. Many churches exist in an almost near-death state, a comatose state. They may be totally blind to it. Dr. Kenneth Quick notes a seminary professor is saying, pray that if the Holy Spirit ever leaves your church, you are not six months figuring out what happened. And he says, many churches in a, are in a dangerous state of decline, resting on the laurels of their past reputation, and they don't even see it. How critical it is for a church to get its eyes off of its past glory and onto a vision of what God wants done today and what Jesus plans for our future. Past life is not present vitality. Past reputation is not Jesus' evaluation. A once living vital church is not necessarily a currently powerful force for the Lord. So he moves on now to the crucial counsel. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. There's more to do. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. There's that word again. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what time I will come to you. Notice, will you please, that the good news is that a comatose church can wake up. We have a word for that. When sleeping comatose churches wake up, what do we call it? We call it revival. A church can be revived, revived, reawakened, reinvigorated, resurrected. Jesus was not done with this church. 
even in its sorry state. Jesus was not done with them unless they were done with him. Now let's be clear, it's taken years for this Sardis church to go from vital and alive to comatose and near dead. And there are some things that must be done if it would come back to life. It's almost a medical analogy here. Here's a church on its deathbed. What could happen? Well, you know those stories. There are sometimes miracles. Someone awakens from a coma after months or years of no response. They wake up, sometimes suddenly, sometimes slowly, and that's a miracle. Typically, if they've been in that state for a long time, there's now got to be a period of rehab and and recovery. Muscles long weakened and atrophied need to be retrained and exercised in order to come back to life. Brain functions that may have been damaged need reprogramming and reconnecting. Sometimes, even after that state, a patient needs to even learn to talk again. But listen, that may be for a church extending God's miracle. A miracle, a recovery that could that may take some time, but I want to tell you the turnaround is an instant in God's work in a church. Truth is that for a church in a comatose state, it is going to take a miracle. It's going to take a revival. God does the miracle, and there's the church's participation. Do you see it? Wake up cooperate, strengthen what remains, remember, get back to those times of dynamic challenge from God, get back to the adventure of enjoying God and and walking with Jesus and serving Him, hold that as precious, and here's that word again, repent, revival always includes repentance, and usually it starts with repentance. God, we've been going the wrong way. No blaming them anymore. Taking responsibility to confess and turn around and repent. Or, look at this next phrase, I will come like a thief. A shocking, surprising visit that will not be to bless you. It will be to remove your light and let you die. Here's a phrase that is usually used to refer to Jesus' second coming, like a thief in the night. You've heard that, I know. That's not what it means here. Jesus' second coming will be to rescue his people. This is a different kind of shocking arrival. Jesus warns of a shocking, surprising crisis that will take the church down and out. So it's a warning. And notice, in this church, there is still a righteous remnant. Those who are faithful to love and serve the Lord. Those who haven't dirtied their clothes. Who haven't compromised with the culture. They're undoubtedly a minority. They're probably not the leaders because the leaders have been leading Sardis toward death and the leaders have got to hear Jesus' challenge and lead in repentance. And for those who have been faithful to Jesus in this dead and dying church of Sardis, Jesus promises that they will walk with him in white 
beautiful picture of pure, sweet fellowship with Jesus. And they're wrapped into this promise, the conditional promise that comes along in verse 5. The one who is victorious will, like them, like the faithful ones, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but I will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. I got to tell you, when I was studying this past week, I I came to these words in verses 4 and 5, and suddenly I found my eyes filled with tears and my heart filled with such a sense of longing. Oh, I want to be one of those who walk with Jesus in white. Part of the emotion of that moment was the memory of singing with the Bethel College Choir for years. And usually the song right before intermission in every concert was the most gorgeous arrangement of the hymn, When He Shall Come. When He Shall Come, resplendent in His glory to take His own from out this veil of night. Oh, may I know the joy at his appearing and in that morn to walk with him in white. That hymn was written in the early 1900s by a woman by the name of Amelia J. Pierce, and it was written at a time when she was told she was dying of advanced hemophilia. They didn't know a lot back then about how blood worked, and they told her they could do nothing more for her. She did survive, but in those dark days, she was yearning for the joy of being at home with the Lord to walk with him in white. And I I remember scores of times having served the Lord by singing for Jesus and singing to Jesus, yearning myself for that day and to be worthy to walk with him in white. Well, how do we apply this text? What what can we learn? How can we be challenged to come closer to Jesus and to make sure that we are not a church in a coma? Well, What are the things that put a church into a coma? There are so many things that can steal spiritual life out of a dynamic congregation. We mentioned one of them before, programmatic Christianity, getting the church on some program that becomes a treadmill that substitutes for real spiritual life. That's one. Conflict in the congregation is another. Conflict will strangle the life out of a congregation. You know what most often kills churches? Christians. Quarreling. That's what most often destroys churches. And Satan is no dummy. He loves getting believers crosswise with each other, with divisions and factions and infighting and distracting to things of secondary importance. 
I love the Evangelical Free Church's byword of keeping the main thing the main thing. The truth of the gospel, the truth of the, uh, the sufficiency of scripture, the sovereign reign of God, the atoning work of Christ, the power of the cross, the presence and, guiding, uh, and guidance of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Jesus' love for his churches, those are the main things. But wow, is it easy for us to get into conflict about stuff that is way less important than that. Let me add as a subcategory, or maybe you'd like to have this as its own category, leaders who can't get along. Let's go this way. No, let's go that way. Can I add even jealousy and personality conflicts and power politics that keep leaders from working together for the glory of Jesus? quarreling, and that can strangle the life out of a great church. A divided church is a dying church. Satan knows it, and, and I tell you, he pours on gasoline. He does not play fair. Here's another, theological and moral drifting. And you see this most often in mainline churches, but it's not just them. It's a real temptation for all of us in today's world. We used to hold the main things, but now we're not so sure. And really, do those old main things really matter? Does it matter anymore that we call people to live for Jesus and live a life that pleases him? That can put a bullet through a church's heart. So can hidden sin. For public view, I look like this, but behind closed doors, I'm something way different. Theological and moral drifting. Its opposite is also deadly. Rigid legalism. Measure up Christianity. Legalism focuses on requiring conformity and outward performance, but it ignores the attitudes of the heart. Quick judgment and condemnation for those who are strugglers. I'm better than you. Attitudes like that, where we're no longer fellow strugglers, but what's wrong with you kind of church? More on that in future weeks. Now to the last phrase. Do you have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church? So how about us? How does Jesus see our current state? Not our past reputation. That gets us nowhere. I want you to know Jesus sees us with hope. with hope. He's got more for us to do. He's not done with us yet. And because we is made up of a whole lot of me's, I've got to ask this question. Is your faith in a comatose state? 
or is it alive? Are you doing life with Jesus or is your deal a Sunday go to meeting thing? A Sunday come to Lakewood thing? If you're not alive, Lakewood won't be alive. If you're not seeking revival, Lakewood won't experience revival. If you won't repent from wrong, Lakewood won't repent from wrong. Is Jesus alive in you? I don't know about you, but I want a faith that's alive, a moment-to-moment connection with Jesus that's pure and powerful. And if that's you too, I'll tell you, amazing things will happen at Lakewood. And more important still, we together will one day walk with him in white. Let's pray. Hard word, Jesus, to that church in Sardis. I thank you for loving them enough to tell them the truth. And Lord, as we look at all these churches, these seven churches, there are little pieces of several of them that, wow, they seem to fit us. And we're looking to you, Lord, to show us not just our opinions, but your view of Lakewood Church. And we want to humble ourselves so that we don't put our words in your mouth But show us your words for us and show us what you want us to do with them. And God, for my sisters and brothers who are here today listening to the proclamation of your word, God, would would you touch their heart in such a personal and intimately tender place that they would reach out to know you and love you deeper than ever before. In your sweet name, Jesus, we pray.